Um, in the last 25 years, uh, there is a 51% increase in colon cancer in patients younger than age 50. So there was a time when we screened people who were 50 or older. We, was, we were screening them, meaning they had nothing wrong. We're just looking for polyps that could turn into cancer. And now we have lowered that age to 45 because now we realize that people are getting colon cancer at a younger age, which is really sad. I mean, where are we gonna, when are we gonna stop and say, hey, we need to eliminate the risk factors for colon cancer rather than keep doing screenings at a younger and younger age. I mean, soon we're gonna do screenings in 20 year olds, you know, if we go the way we are going. Hi there, veggie mates. Welcome back to the Veg Talk podcast. I am your host, Matthew Davey. You just heard from Dr. Angie Sadi, this week's special guest on the show. I cannot wait to get stuck into the conversation with you all. We'll be talking about gut health, and there is a load of helpful info. So get your notebook out and get that pen ready. Before we jump into episode 23, a quick update on where Anna and I are at. We just spent the last week in Quintana Roo, where we visited Cancun, Playa del Carmen, and Tulum. It's an absolutely amazing part of the world, beautiful beaches, cenotes, pyramids, and also lagoons. If you'd like to check out what we have been up to, go and subscribe to Anna's YouTube page, where she is uploading videos twice a week. You can find her by searching Anna Alarcon on YouTube or following the YouTube link in my Instagram bio at VegTalk. Now for this week's epic show with the amazing Dr. Angie Sadegi. I'm really excited about this one as we dive deep into the world of gut health. We cover a range of common issues that Angie sees in her patients on a regular basis, which are the same as what the high majority of Americans with gut issues also suffer from. Angie is a gastroenterologist based in the OC area of California. Originally from Iran, her and her family immigrated here when she was young. After firstly going vegetarian, Angie's eyes were opened up to the power of a plant-based diet and she quickly incorporated this into her practice, also diving deep into the literature to learn as much as she could so she could treat and heal her patients. Thank you to Angie for giving up her time to come on the show. I really enjoyed learning from her. I hope you are able to come away from this episode with a better understanding of what our gut needs to function healthily. I'll catch you all after the show. All right, we're rolling. Cool. So today we're here in the Orange County area of California with Dr. Angie Sadegi. It's been an awesome day. We've hit the gym. We're, we're ready to roll. So thank you so much for your time today. Um, I know it's kind of been in the works. We had this one lined up uh, a little while ago and uh, really stoked to be here in uh in 2019 kicking off the veg talk podcast so thank you angie my pleasure let's do it cool so i think it's a really good way to start off you've got a really interesting story outside of what you do today um, before you got into um, gastroenterology if that is rolling off my tongue correctly Um, and i'd love to hear about that just you know um, your beginnings coming to america um, and kind of forging your way Uh, onto the medical scene here yeah sure so i grew up in iran uh near 
the city Tehran and pretty much grew up eating the same things that children eat here and um, my diet consisted of a lot of meat a lot of vegetables as well but a lot of meat and a lot of dairy so it's very common for children in Iran to consume large amounts of yogurt and dairy products so I just didn't know any better and I just continued eating that way until medical school and um, until after medical school when I was in my residency at USC I was sitting with a co-resident and we were just talking and I wasn't thinking anything about diet food nutrition we're just learning the stuff that we need to learn to get by and finish residency all that work lack of sleep but um, you know I was talking to my friend Sarah who was also a resident and I looked at her plate because we're having lunch together and I looked and there was a plate full of vegetables and colorful um, things like different types of vegetables and my plate consisted of a burger and fries <laughs> and I looked at her plate and kind of made fun of her and I said where's your meat I mean you know she had no meat and everything looked so healthy she said I don't eat meat and I said well why not and I thought crazy person what do you mean you don't eat meat and I was thinking where does she get her protein and uh, she said to me um, I don't eat meat because I love animals and I can't eat animals I don't know why but that had such a profound effect on me because I love animals too I had a dog and I thought about well I wouldn't kill this dog and eat it and I wouldn't personally kill or injure an animal why would I pay into that kind of industry so it had a profound effect on me and as of that day I decided that I will never eat another animal it was that profound so that was the last burger I ever had that had meat in it obviously I've had burgers did, but did you finish it or did you stop right there no I finished it <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty hungry but yeah. that was it that was the last burger I had and the last piece of meat I had so fast forward just going through residency lack of sleep fellowship not learning anything about nutrition it was just survival mode getting through and about five years ago I was at a seminar and the speaker spoke about the deleterious effects of dairy and how dairy is sugar water and if you're trying to lose weight why would you want to drink milk or eat products that um, are dairy and I thought well that's true you know at the time I was gonna I wanted to lose weight I was a little overweight and I thought about it and I was like oh it's so it's harmful for your health I didn't know that and um, you know and just like the typical doctor I had never studied nutrition at that point so then later on I ran into my cousin at the seminar and she's a vegan and I said to her oh I've been vegetarian for 15 years or whatever years 10 years at that time and she said that's great but if you really want to do it for the animals which she knew I was at the time strictly a moral vegan she said you have to stop consuming dairy because the dairy industry is far more cruel than the meat industry and that was news to me I had no idea and I was like what and besides that, she said something very important to me. I owe her so much, big time. She said, as a physician, I think you should watch Forks Over Knives on Netflix. I was like, 
what is this forks over knives and she's like look it up on netflix so that night i went home i came home and i watched forks over knives and it forever changed my life because up until that point i was doing it for moral reasons and i had no idea about the health benefits of a whole food plant-based diet i didn't know what that is i thought vegan versus non-vegan i didn't know what a whole food plant-based diet is and so it really opened up my eyes about the health benefits and how i could use it in my clinic to help my patients with various diseases and even after watching that documentary i was even though i was very aware of the benefits as far as reversing coronary artery disease i still didn't know the benefits as far as the gastrointestinal system is is concerned so that took a while i did my research and i attended nutritional conferences read books listened to podcasts and just did everything i could in a short period of time to educate the heck out of myself and learn about the health benefits of the whole food plant-based diet, not only for metabolic disorders like diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, but also for the gastrointestinal diseases. So it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So at that point, I was not only an ethical vegan, I, I, I pretty much became um, an overall, like one of those vegans that, who did it for health, for um, the environment, for the animals. And you know, really, um, it's, it's been the best blessing of my life. It just basically gave me so much happiness. It brings happiness to my life every day because I have, I'm, I have a mission now and it gave me purpose. It was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I wake up in, uh, you know, in the morning and I look forward to going to work because I feel like I'm onto something really great. And, uh, the older generations, um, didn't know about and here I have the opportunity to use my knowledge and my um, my background as a gastroenterologist to promote health and really be able to help my patients whereas in the past I was basically prescribing medicines and realizing that it's not working people were not getting better I wasn't improving their quality of life they were merely surviving and I was pushing all these medicines onto them and I was noticing that they're not really getting better. I'm not really helping them. So it wasn't exciting. And now I'm excited to go to work because I feel like I'm really, truly helping them and not just shoving medicines down their throats, but also helping them reverse diseases and improve their lives, improve their quality of life so they can live longer, but a healthier, longer life. Which is very important. That's the, I suppose, the difference. We were talking about it earlier. Um, yeah, we were talking about with with Bijan the, the the difference is that you can live the you know the last decade of your life in in a nursing home being looked after, um, being fed all t- all types of medicine, or you can you know be mowing the lawns, cooking your own dinner, being empowered to live your own life um, in a healthy way. And I know what I'd much prefer, and I totally agree with you. It changed my life as well. The same documentary. Um, which is, yeah, definitely one I'd recommend if you if you haven't seen it before, guys who are listening in. An interesting thing you just brought up that I want to touch on, you know, the GI tract itself, you know, it's from, from mouth to our anus and why food isn't something that all of, you know, all of you guys in, in school are learning about is kind of baffling. It does seem logical now that I think about it, um, but yeah, what do you think about that in terms of encouraging other people in your position 
to go in and learn about nutrition, even if it's, you know, it might not be something that interests them because they have gone through school. They've learned, you know, all about medications and, and how they uh, are meant to work. And yeah, I think when people go to university, they they feel like that knowledge is the truth. You know, they've, they've gone into a, a really well-known establishment, learn all this stuff, and now they're out in the out in the world teaching their patients about it how can we teach more doctors to to think about nutrition yeah i mean it's challenging because the curriculum is based on diagnosing disease learning pathophysiology of disease and treating disease the curriculum is not about preventing disease i think that it's important to teach nutrition in schools because as 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 doctors we shouldn't just be treating disease we should also help patients prevent disease and and it should be about prevention rather than treatment and as the awareness um is higher and you know it's just there's not enough awareness yet but as as people learn about nutrition and realize the, the power of nutrition and medical schools incorporate it into their curriculum, I think more and more doctors will embrace it. Until then, it's hard because doctors aren't trained. And if they don't have, like I had a passion for it initially because of the animals. So my, I was fueled by that. And I had a compelling vision where if I learn about the health benefits, I could also help the animals. So for me, it was a little bit different. Right. But for someone who's not such an animal lover, perhaps there may not be as much of an incentive. And so they have zero incentive to learn about nutrition and incorporate it in their uh, daily medical care. Why? Because you lose money talking about nutrition. It's not incentivized monetarily. So literally, um, you know, you're going to drop your income sitting there talking about nutrition, whereas you can write a prescription really quick, walk out and, you know, be able to afford your overhead, pay your staff and things like that. So I can see how it's it's not easy for doctors to get into nutrition. The awareness in the general population is low. So a lot of people will look at you and be like, I don't care. I'm not going to live the rest of my life eating healthy because I want to have my burgers and fries. Uh, just give me the magic pill. A lot of people do that. So there are some people you can touch in the clinic and some people you can't. You never know who it is. So for a doctor to start talking about it, it's, it's a massive decision. And it could, it could go either way. So uh, I feel like it's going to have to be a multidisciplinary thing. I think um, it, has to, it comes from the grassroots. I think the, the awareness should be higher in the population. So a lot of people start thinking about it. And then when they go to see their physicians, if their physicians bring it up, they don't look at them like, you know, what are you talking about? Because that's sometimes the look I get. What do you mean go vegan? Are you kidding me? Um, so if the awareness was higher, doctors would have an easier time speaking about it. And so I think that's where we're headed. I think we're, we have come to realize the benefits of a whole food plant-based diet. And it's you can see more and more people are eating that way. So the, it's, it's getting out, the word's getting out, and people are becoming more and more aware. And thankfully, I believe in the next decade, doctors will have 
a much easier time um, talking about it. And more and more evidence is coming out in regards to the whole food plant-based diet. And as, as the literature grows, doctors will embrace it, you know, and so that's key as well. Yeah, it's harder for them to turn away if, you know, their own profession and, and the research in their own fields is pointing towards whole food plant-based because it's, yes. it's not just one thing, is it? We're not just talking about helping our, uh, you know, helping our gut. We're also talking yeah. about reversing heart disease. Yes. We're talking about preventing cancers. Yes. Um, the list kind of goes on. It's, yes. uh, it, it does seem like a simple fix because it is in our grocery store. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think yes. once the, the broader community starts to embrace it more and more, and I do feel like we're at a tipping point, you yeah, know, we, we are, are we, sure. we are getting there. So really looking forward to, to that era kind of progressing, uh, and taking place. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, yeah, more, more people being able to go to their doctor and get that advice. Yes. Um, and, and take it into their own lives. And I really think our dietitians need to get on board because doctors and dietitians together can form a really powerful team. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? We were talking yeah. about it earlier. I mean, I think that the, the literature is um, biased. in the w When you look at what they teach in um, dietary schools, it's so biased. It's, the dairy industry has infiltrated uh, their um, didactics and basically they are learning things um, in a biased way, so they finish their school. They, 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 you know, they come see my patients, for example, in the hospital. And I, just recently, I'll give you an example. I was rounding on a patient at the hospital, and I put, put her on a clear liquid diet, and um, I put no dairy. The dietitian came by, and she said, "We don't have much in the form of clear liquid diet that doesn't have dairy." And this patient had something called an ileus and basically gas and bloating. And you know what happens when you give someone whose intestines are ballooned out already dairy, you know, it makes it 10 times worse, but that's all they know. That's how they've learned. Dietitians have learned to just put people on way, uh, you know, ensure and other crap like that. That's terrible for your health and has dairy in it. And you know, and it's just basically, it's hard because the dietitians, I believe, need to step it up and do their research and realize how the dairy industry has created so much bias in the literature. And so what they know is not the truth. So as more and so doctors and dietitians can team up together to teach patients. Um, but of course, right now, it's a d difficult problem because doctors don't know about nutrition and the dietitians have learned it incorrectly. So I think the plant-based movement is really key and the Plantation Project is doing so much uh, for, um, for the, uh, the health of people in that they are helping doctors and dietitians and nutritionists learn the whole about the benefits of the whole food plant-based diet. So what you learn in school doesn't even matter. You can come in with any specialty. You can be a chiropractor, you can be a cardiologist, you can be a cardiothoracic surgeon, you can be an orthospine doctor. It doesn't matter. You can come from any background. You can be a dietitian. You, you go into this conference and basically what they do is they teach you the benefits of the whole food plant-based diet. And I think that's key. And I think they have, they've been growing 
uh, so much in the last six years. And every time I go, there's an extra 200 people um, compared to the year before. So you can see the movement is growing. Well, I wish it was faster, but it is what it is. Yeah, no, I think that that speaks volumes. If, if it's growing by those numbers year on year, um, the growth will only get more and more exponential. And I think, I think getting back to the core of why doctors become doctors, generally, they want to help people. Yes. So it must be a really cool feeling to, you know, during your practice, you, you know, during your years practicing, you've gone from, you know, not knowing about the full benefits to now knowing about it, but you get to see patients walk out of there really healing. Actually, you know, they're not going away on a lifetime of pills that they need to consume to, you know, maintain their, their, you know, their gut function. You can actually start to heal them through the power of nutrition and actually help them, which is why you're there in the first place and what, yes. you know, where your passion started. So from a doctor's perspective, I can... You know, I can only see it being a huge, huge positive, um, not only for their practice, but um, for for themselves, why why they got into it in the first place. Oh, yeah, it's so rewarding. Cool. So I think now moving forward, I suppose there's a lot of terms, a lot of diets. You know, there's a lot of popular things floating around in um, social media spheres, the blogosphere whatever we want to call it, things are catching wind and, you know, people tend to latch on and, and start promoting it themselves. And one of that I'm, I am kind of interested in and I've heard it get thrown around a lot is, is the FODMAP diet. So I wanted to know what is it firstly and also is it beneficial to us? Yeah, sure. So FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaturide, disaturide, um, monosaturide, um, and polyols. So FODMAPs are short-chain carbohydrates that are not um, digested uh, or absorbed very well in the intestines by the digestive enzymes. These um, carbohydrates are pretty much processed and digested by the gut microbiome. So I'll give you a little history on the FODMAPs. Um, obviously, as you know, there are a lot of intestinal diseases and a lot of people suffer from gas, bloating, and GI upset. So a while ago, I believe a couple of decades ago, over a decade ago at Stanford University, they came out with this protocol of eating a low FODMAP diet. So essentially what they would do is eliminate these foods that have these types of carbohydrates in them that can cause gas and bloating because they're maldigested, all right? So if you don't have uh, the intestinal gut microbiome to pr properly break them down, we can just eliminate them and you would not have gas and bloating, right? So that was the thought and they thought we should do this, people should try this for the short term, especially people with irritable bowel syndrome and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and they said for the short term 
we should put these people on this diet and eliminate all these carbohydrates that could cause gas and bloating. So what kind of carbohydrates are they eliminating? So essentially what it would be is eliminating fruits, a lot of fruits, different types of fruits, a lot of different vegetables, a lot of sweeteners, honey, and uh, basically um, milk, cheese, and products like that, okay? So I'll tell you what I like about the FODMAP diet and what I dislike about the FODMAP diet. In the short term, if you avoid all these foods, you do get benefits in that the gas and bloating goes away. But unfortunately, many of these FODMAPs are also pro-prebiotic which means they're food for the healthy gut microbiome in the digestive tract, okay? So if you take them away, although you may be getting temporary relief and you, you're not getting gas and bloating, in the long run, you're actually killing off the diversity of the gut microbiome that needs these carbohydrates to live and thrive and to multiply. Do you understand what I mean? No, I'm fo I follow. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So either you can eliminate it altogether or what I do for my patients, I do not put them on a FODMAP diet. I basically went through the FODMAP diet and figured out, okay, what do I like about it and what do I dislike about it? If you look, lactose or the sugar that is in dairy is, is detrimental for people's health because we do not have the digestive capacity. Um, about 70 or over 70% of the population cannot break down lactose sugar, which is a large sugar molecule found in dairy products. When you eat the sugar molecule, it goes into the intestines where it would normally um, meet up with this enzyme called lactase to get broken down. When you're younger, you have plenty of lactase, it breaks it down, no problems. However, when you're older and you're missing lactase enzyme, uh, this sugar draws a whole bunch of water to it through osmosis and it gives you explosive diarrhea, gas and bloating, all right? In my opinion, <laughs> human beings should not be consuming milk from a, the breasts of a mammal, another mammal, or from their mother's breast after, say, I don't know, two, three years of age. And if you're doing that, that's unnatural. Furthermore, there are harmful proteins in dairy products, including whey and casein, which are completely inflammatory. So when I went through the FODMAPs, I was like, all right, instead of avoiding all these prebiotic foods like fruits and vegetables, why not just take away the lact lactose sugar and the sugars that come from dairy? Because dairy is terrible anyway, and who needs it? So I didn't want to put my patients on a FODMAP diet for that reason, because they would be giving up a lot of the good prebiotics, right? So I, would, I told them, I just want one month of your life. Instead of putting them on a FODMAP diet with a huge list of stuff, I said, avoid honey which is pure sugar, avoid xylitol and these uh, fake sugars, and avoid the dairy, which are the things that are bad for you on that FODMAP diet, and continue eating everything else. So if they're eating meat, continue eating meat? Yeah, Yep. that's all I did. I just yep. said avoid the dairy, the fake sugars, mm -hmm. and avoid um, 
uh, the honey and basically all you're doing is avoiding the dairy um, besides the, the fake sugars and the honey. So I got an overwhelmingly awesome response. And so patients with irritable bowel syndrome, with uh, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and gas and bloating in general, diarrhea and constipation would come back and they would be tremendously better. So whereas, I, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I jumped on the bandwagon of the FODMAPs and I put my patients on it. I realized after I studied whole food plant-based diets and nutrition and the beneficial effects of prebiotics, which you can talk about later, um, in the FODMAPs, I realized that FODMAP diet is actually a really bad idea. Why put someone on a FODMAP and eliminate the gut microbiome and then have to re-inoculate? Why don't we just eliminate the FODMAPs that are not good for you anyway, like the dairy and the honey and the, sh the sugars? So I realized that the FODMAP diet is not the, not the one I would ever want to use and I would never recom recommend to my patients because just avoiding those two or three things can work just as well as if you avoid the FODMAPs. Um, so in general, um, a lot of these FODMAPs they talk about um, are very heavy in prebiotics. Prebiotics are food for the gut microbiome, okay? So a lot of people take probiotics. Basically, they're swallowing the actual um, microbiome, the gut, the, gut, the gut bacteria, organisms, in a pill. Who knows how many of these guys actually end up in the colon where they need to go or the small intestine, wherever you want it to go, because the acidity in the stomach can kill a lot of them off. So more intelligently, if you want to re-inoculate with probiotics, it's fine, but more intelligently, you need to feed your gut microbiome the prebiotics that are found in fruits and vegetables to let them thrive in their own environment where they like to, to be. It makes a lot of sense. Um, those, those probiotic pills, are they much the same as something like a protein powder? Are they isolated? And we don't really know 100% what happens inside the body once it's ingested. I know T. Colin Campbell, he talks in his book, I think it's Whole, and possibly the China study as well. He talks about, you know, foods that aren't, can, uh, sorry, aren't ingested in their whole natural state. Well, the body doesn't necessarily absorb them the way you might think. So like right. adding a protein scoop to your smoothie where in nature do you find pea protein isolate <laughs> or where do you find in nature probiotic pills on their own they come with a whole bunch of right. other protective um you know chemicals that help the body to ingest it so is it the same do you think it could be the same with uh, the probiotic pills well, I mean, you and I both know how I feel about protein powders. I just think that um, that is not natural to, to consume a whole bunch of protein all at one time without fiber attached to it. And it, it's not natural. I, would, I don't think that's, that's the best way of doing it. I think it may be helpful for a select group of individuals who are bodybuilders who need to eat a certain amount of protein and they can't really eat that much food because 
in order to consume, I don't know, 250 to 300 grams of protein, they would have to eat boatloads of food and it's impossible. So in those bodybuilders, it may, they may, it may play a role. However, I don't think for the average person like you and I who don't bodybuild and we're not like, you know, 250, 250 pounds to consume, it's just not... To me, it doesn't make sense. Right. Um, unfortunately, the bodybuilding building industry is very strong, and it's basically dictating how people should eat, even though they're not bodybuilders. So that's how I feel about the protein products. The products are completely different. I believe that there are different, many different conditions um, in which protein, I'm sorry, uh, the probiotics are very helpful. And I think that if for whatever reason, if you have inflammatory bowel disease, for example, where the gut microbiome is destroyed, if you take antibiotics for a sinus infection where um, the gut microbiome is destroyed, if you, for example, have any type of gut disease or dysbiosis in certain situations, it's, it's wise to take probiotics to re-inoculate the missing gut microbiome to avoid infections like cholesterol difficile and some other things that we can talk about. So I think it's two different, it's completely um, um, different. Uh, you know, when it comes to probiotics, I believe in taking probiotics, not if you're just totally normal and you just feel like taking it. I think that mm -hmm. may be a bad idea because we don't know the side effects or the harmful future, harmful effects of taking probiotics when you randomly just feel like doing it with no problems. Perhaps you could create overgrowth. I mean, I don't know. It, no one really knows. So I don't think it's indicated. However, there are certain conditions in which it's important to take probiotics. So it's a little bit, it has, it definitely has shown therapeutic effects. Case by case kind in, of in, situation. For example, ulcerative colitis. There is evidence that in conjunction with other therapy, you can re-inoculate the gut in patients with ulcerative colitis. Um, if you take um, antibiotics, you need to re-inoculate the gut with these uh, gut microbiomes. So taking probiotics is wise. So for sure, for sure, it's, there's, um, it, it's totally different. Yeah, and and I, I'm not anti-probiotics. I'm just more pro taking prebiotics. And there is no magic pill for that. Prebiotics are in foods that you eat. You know, we live in a country where everyone wants to bottle something up and sell it to you, okay? Because there's a lot of money in the supplement industry. But truth be told, you don't need supplements. You just need to eat food, just good old fiber. And as long as you're getting a lot of fiber in your diet, you are eating enough probiotics and you are feeding the gut microbiome what they need, the beneficial gut microbiome, who in turn thrive, and uh, protect you against colon cancer and inflammatory bowel disease and all these other diseases of the gut. So that probably is a good segue into really my next question about what the microbiome needs. And also in comparison to those diets we're hearing a lot about, yes, whole food plant-based is on the rise. It's um, being, you know, it's, it's getting in the media more. It's more widespread on social media. But there's also other diets that are, you know, fairly prolific at the moment, such as, say, a keto diet or a paleo diet, even carnivore diets we're hearing about, um, you know, which is, it seems bizarre to me. But I just wanted to hear from you what the microbiome really needs, what it thrives on, uh, and maybe where those other diets do fall short. 
Absolutely. Very good question. And I'm really glad you asked this one. So fiber is an essential nutrient for the gut microbiome. Okay. Let me repeat that. Fiber is an essential nutrient for the gut microbiome. So any diet, I don't know, it could be Matt Davies diet or Angie Sudeikis diet, or it could be called Nutrisystem or I don't know, it could be called the keto diet, the paleo diet, the carnivore. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. If it's deficient in fiber, that means it's destroying and harming the gut microbiome and the gut health, your gut health. Okay. That's a general rule. I tell my patients when you're eating something, if it doesn't have fiber, it doesn't belong in your body. Simple as that. Okay. So Fiber is an essential nutrient that is basically that comes from foods such as vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, and legumes like beans and lentils. So fiber goes, travels down into your digestive tract and it's food for the healthy gut microbiome who turn this uh, fiber into what we call short chain fatty acids. You may have heard the word butrate, which is the short-chain fatty acids. And these, uh, the butrate is food for the gut cells, okay? So it's, it's really essential that the gut cells get enough butrate to basically reverse colon damage, reverse intestinal damage. This is really important. So if you're intestinal lining, what we call enterocytes, who cares about the name? If these cells have damage, mutation damage, like cancer cells, like cancer DNA, if they have inflammation, when you consume enough fiber, that fiber turns into the butrates by the gut microbiome, and that butrate is food for the enterocytes to take away that damage and that inflammation. Simple enough? It makes sense to me. I was just while you were talking about that, I was thinking how quickly can it change? Yeah. How quickly is our microbiome affected? You know, say, I don't know. What if I had breakfast tomorrow morning and I decided that I didn't want to be plant based anymore and I ate bacon and eggs? Would it affect my microbiome? Within a few short days, you can change the gut microbiome. It's very quick. Um, You basically. The gut microbiome is very dynamic, so it's not like you're born with a certain number and you're going to die with the same guys that lived in your body when you were born. It changes based on your dietary changes. Let's say you're smoking, drinking alcohol, eating tons of saturated fat, like the standard American diet is full of saturated fat. So is the keto diet. So is the paleo diet. So is the carnivore diet, right? If you're eating those, uh, and then, and you know, there is a spectrum. I've seen some people uh, who eat paleo who also eat more vegetables than others. But so there's a spectrum there. But uh, I'd say the worst one would be the carnivore diet, and the second worst one would be the keto diet because it's full of saturated fat. Within days, you could shift the gut microbiome to more of what we call bile loving gut microbiome. This is bile acids are very the like pretty strong potent acids that are detrimental for the gut health and they get uh, they get released when you eat a diet high in saturated fat and the gut microbiome shifts to more of an unhealthy gut microbiome when you eat foods like that 
and these bile-loving gut microbiome are higher in population comparatively, and they start causing inflammation. They cause damage in the gut, which leads to things we will talk about, leaky gut, inflammatory bowel disease like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, and many other problems. So again, going back to what we're talking about, fiber is essential in feeding the good gut microbiome in he to heal the gut. But it's as important not to consume the, fa the uh, saturated fat that comes with certain foods. They can do the exact opposite, right? So do we do we now do we know now the the difference between like a saturated fat from an avocado in its whole natural state versus you know the saturated fat that comes in an egg? Well, there are some talks where some people claim saturated fat that comes from coconut oil is okay for you, but saturated fat that comes from a butter is bad for you. I don't think so. I think saturated fat is saturated fat. You will never find if uh, a plant food that is super high in saturated fat, there's only very little saturated fat in fruits and vegetables that you would find in nature. Most of it is fiber. There's different types of fats, usually good fats and some saturated fat, which is important. You know, you need to have a little bit because that's how, uh, you know, you can, um, that saturated fat can also increase the cholesterol a little bit in your diet. If you're not eating any other animal products, that's how you make hormones, right? So it's not that it's that, little bit of saturated fat found in plant foods is going to kill you. It's not like that. When you go out and take coconuts, for example, and make coconut oil, and it's really high in saturated fat, that's where you could run into trouble. Oils, right? Or eating a steak or eating um, eggs. That's how you really boost up. Or chicken. That's how you really boost up. Your, uh, you know, you're consuming way too much saturated fat. So is there a difference? I'm not sure anyone has ever proven that if you take saturated fat from fruits and put it in someone's body, that's going to act totally differently than if you get it from eggs. I think it's the same. It, it, thus far, based on our current knowledge, it's the same. Okay. I mean, it's all super, super interesting. I think um, another one that just came to mind is, you know, with the microbiome, if we are experiencing, um, you know, problems, does it affect things like our mood or our focus? Um, anything like that? Is it, does it have, you know, a domino effect? Is it, it's, it's not just in our, in our gut. It definitely, I mean, the research has associated your mood and um, many diseases, many hormonal regulations. Um, there are so many things that are affected by the gut microbiome. I think that when it comes down to it, the health of, you know, your mood has to do with your hormonal regulation. Mm -hmm. And when you're eating a healthy diet, keeping your gut healthy, the hormones that are being produced or the neurotransmitters that are being produced by your gut are a certain way. And if you're eating a bad diet that causes inflammation, the hormonal regulations are completely different. And so that's how it's probably uh, so mood is correlated with the health of your gut microbiome. 
I can tell you, for example, about 90% of the um, serotonin that is produced in our body comes from the gut. So either you can take these antidepressants, which basically are called serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and basically increase the level of serotonin between your brain synapses and keep them around longer. Or you can eat really healthy food and allow your gut to produce more of it, right? So there's now a lot of focus on healthy eating to manage um, your mood and, and things like that. And I think in the past that was very much underrepresented or the focus was just about, you know, certain life situations, certain genetics cause depression, you know, and, and that's true. It's multifactorial. I'm not saying diet alone. However, now we know that diet has a large part and maybe it's far stronger contributor than we had initially thought about. about. So it's very important that, you know, we eat a healthy diet in to manage our mood. I think it's something we can we can go out and experiment ourselves. If we're not eating a healthful diet right now, you can start to make basic switches um, and get on that track and kind of check inventory yourself. You know, okay, how am I feeling? Uh, is my mood better? Am I sleeping better? Uh, is my stomach and gut feeling, uh, you know, less bloated or am I having less problems? Basically, you you can feel it yourself so i'd recommend it to anyone out there that is listening that isn't currently eating whole food plant-based to at least experiment with it and get on that track as you said eliminating dairy from their diet is a huge is a huge switch you can make uh, tomorrow i think it's the single most important step you could take towards your health in regards to the gastrointestinal health. Yeah, and there's there's a cool campaign, Switch for Good. Yes. That has um, started. That's Dot, Dotsie Bausch. Yes, Dotsie Bausch is a an Olympic silver medalist. And I believe she was the oldest who's ever competed in that category. And, and she's a cyclist, right? She's a cyclist. Yep. Amazing woman, a good friend of mine. I actually got to put her silver medal around my neck. Oh, that's cool. One thing I have to tell you is you have no idea how heavy that medal is. I was like so shocked. I'd never held one. Yeah. And I, w- I was like pretty shocked. I put it around my neck. It was such a good feeling. It's <laughs> 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 like, I, I wish I could have one of these, but that's <laughs> all right. I'll just make my contributions in the field of medicine. Yep. I want to be a sil- Dotsie Bosch in the field of gastroenterology. How's that? We'll get you a medal. We'll, we'll get, get you a medal. Uh, yes, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. Let's fish for that. No, that's cool. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's a super easy switch to make. I mean, if you are, if you are concerned, it's, a, it's really as simple as going to the grocery store and just taking a step to the left or the right. Yes, and, and by the way, I'm so sorry to cut you off, but no. I also I made a lactose intolerance quiz for Switch for Good website. So if, if your listeners would go to the website, Switch for Good, there is a lactose intolerance quiz where they, they can tell whether they have, you know, if their symptoms perhaps are not IBS, it's like maybe it's lactose intolerance. And so they can avoid if they get all the, if the answer is yes, 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 based on that quiz, 
they may want to eliminate dairy for a month and see the difference. That's what I tell my patients. That's fantastic. So that is on the Switch for Good website. It is. Mm-hmm. Really cool resource. Glad you mentioned that. So I think, um, you know, moving, moving forward again, I want to hear about, you've, you've alluded to them, but I want to hear a little bit more about some of the more common uh, problems that you see on a daily basis. So things that people out there might be experiencing themselves, uh, they're looking to improve, and yeah, what you generally tell patients. I think we've we've spoken, we've alluded to leaky gut, C diff, SIBO, irritable bowel syndrome, um, Crohn's disease, uh, and also something that seems to be, I suppose, seems to be growing. I've definitely heard about it. Uh, from professionals like yourself is the rise of colon cancer in younger people mm-hmm. yes that's um, really key so i'd love to hear more uh yes firstly are they the things you're seeing on a daily basis uh and, mm-hmm. and what are you doing oh to yeah help? i mean i cut out colon polyps out of uh people's colons and sometimes they have cancer cells in it and sometimes unfortunately i'm in a situation where i do a colonoscopy and i find a cancer tumor in there which is not resectable while doing a colonoscopy and that has to go to surgery where people have to lose part of their colon and get chemo and radiation and things like that but um so colon cancer is basically the second biggest cancer killer in the united states in both men and women and um so basically cancer arises from the colon in patients who drink and smoke, who are obese, who are eating a lot of meat-rich diets, um, a lot of processed meats like bacon and sausage, and um, people who eat a very low-fiber diet. So those are some risk factors. Diabetes is another risk factor, which diabetes type 2 is, I think, optional you know, based on your diet. So those are some risk factors in people. um, And colon cancer is a huge, huge uh, deal. And in fact, things aren't getting better, to be honest with you. Um, In fact, recently, um, their recommendations changed because the incidence of colon cancer is going up in younger patients. So um, in the last 25 years, uh, there is a 51% increase in colon cancer in patients younger than age 50. So there was a time when we screened people who were 50 or older. We, was, we were screening them, meaning they had nothing wrong. We're just looking for polyps that could turn into cancer. And now we have lowered that age to 45 because now we realize that people are getting colon cancer at a younger age which is really sad i mean where are we gonna when are we gonna stop and say hey we need to eliminate the risk factors for colon cancer rather than keep doing screenings at a younger and younger age i mean soon we're going to do screenings in 20 year olds you know if we go the way we are going so i think a really important thing that we can all take on board is rather than I suppose playing the victim, if if that is the the right term, and and kind of leaving it to chance. There's nothing better than empowering yourself with the right knowledge to go about your own life. And what we continue to talk about time and time again is prevention. Yes. And not particularly need the need or have to go and get a screen when when you are 45. You know, at 45, we, 
you're 45 years of age yourself. Like we should be thriving. Yes. And I feel 18. Right. We should be going to the gym, pumping weights, Mm -hmm. going for runs, Stairmaster, riding your bike, hiking, and not having to worry about killers like colon cancer. So yeah, I think we, you know, as, as health starts to decline, I think the, I might've seen the, the age, the, the life expectancy of Americans for the first time since, I don't know, decades ago is actually going to go down. Mm-hmm. So that speaks volumes about where we're at in and terms of health. And worse than that, worse than that, Matt, it's the quality of life our elderly have in the last 10 decades, 10 years of their life, the last decade of their life. I go to the hospital a lot most uh, you know um and most of these patients i see the elderly they spend 10 years of their life in and out of the hospital where they're having heart catheterizations dialysis um, injections colonoscopies and um, they have all kinds of scans and they are poked and pushed around like you know do this and do that and it is so it's terrible. I, I don't even know how to explain it. I wish that the listeners could come follow me around the hospital for one day to see how gruesome that is to have to go through that and endure that kind of a life. And they all wish they could have done it differently. And those same people who are going in the hospital on their deathbed, if you had asked them when they were 30 to eat healthy, they couldn't probably they couldn't understand or imagine how bad it would be. I, I know for a fact, if you were to speed them in a time machine into the future in that hospital bed, they would do differently, but then it's too late, you know? And so it's really important that people understand that nobody's invincible. Nobody should take their health for granted. And it could happen to any of us. Just look statistically, the number one killer in the United States is heart disease. Cancer is a huge killer right? And lifestyle choices are extremely important in contributing to those diseases. Therefore, you may get lucky. You may be the one person who gets lucky, but most people don't. Most people will go through the same patterns and end up in the same place that 99% of Americans are ending up in. So it's important to, to think now while you're young, prevent disease. Yeah, take the time to invest in yourself. It's the best thing you'll invest in. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, you've got to live in your own body for, you know, for the duration of, of life. I think um, Simon Hill from Plant Proof calls it our space suit. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, keep, it, keep it in good neck, keep it in good shape because, um, yeah, when you do hit older age, um, the choices we make now, uh, you know, I'm 28, the choices I make now, are, whether I like to believe it or not, they're going to affect me in the future. So, um yeah definitely something we can take advantage of another thing that's crazy is that you just referred to uh, heart disease being the number one killer dr esselstyn calls heart disease a paper toothless tiger that need not exist yeah so to think that it's our number one killer but if we went about lifestyle and nutrition in a different way we potentially wouldn't be seeing it so true yeah, crazy, crazy to yeah to think about that. So, I suppose other things that you you see often 
Um, I know I know one that we engaged on on social media a while ago uh, with C Diff. So I I don't know a lot about C Diff. I was on a train in Boston, and there was a you know a little advertisement uh, from a company called Open Biome, and they basically they were basically advertising for people to donate their stool. So kind of a weird thing I thought to do. I was like, that's strange. And it also said something like, you know, you will get paid a certain amount for every every successful donation. And I rocked up and they said, look, only 3% of people get in because you need to be, you know, pretty healthy. Yeah. Uh, you do, you know, you do a, a questionnaire and they, they basically just you know, ask about your lifestyle choices um, over the past, you know, decade more or less. And yeah, it, it got me interested. It really did. And then I think I saw you talking about it on Instagram not too long after I reached out and I said, look, I'm, I'm actually doing this program <laughs> where I'm, uh, I'm donating my stool. So would you be able to go into C-Diff, um, what it's like for the person experiencing it? Yes. <laughs> so we have an epidemic of C-Diff. An epidemic. Do we know why? Yes. Um, I'll go through that. Okay. So just to let you know, I was just recently working at the hospital um, and I encountered, in the short time I was there, about 10 to 12 days I was there, I encountered about six patients who came in with life-threatening infections because of a bacteria called C. diff, Clostridium difficile. Cholesteridium difficile has become a huge problem and a huge epidemic, which it's, it's a big, I mean, it's, a, it's one of those deadly bacterias and it can kill you. It, it, in your intestines, it starts producing toxins and the toxins um, give you explosive diarrhea, lead to dehydration. They give you, it gives you extremely just severe inflammation which just eats up the colon and causes ulcerations and major colitis basically and people are now coming in with severe disease where they're in what we call sepsis where they're like basically their heart is about to stop they're about to stop breathing and they're you know living because of this overwhelming C. diff infection and i so C. diff has become an epidemic due to the overuse of antibiotics. So imagine you have a very low diversity of gut microbiome to begin with because you have, you're basically eating the standard American diet and um, you go on a course of antibiotics because you have a simple sinus infection or a urinary tract infection and then suddenly you kill off about whatever, to half of the gut microbiome that are there and then this C. diff becomes strong and it takes over and it basically causes a life-threatening infection. So we used to be able to treat C. diff with antibiotics, certain other types of antibiotics called metronidazole and vancomycin. So although certain antibiotics cause C. diff by eradicating the good flora, certain other ones can actually kill the C. diff, okay? So you would give an antibiotic for sinuses and you would use a different antibiotic to kill the C. diff. So when patients come in with 
an, an infection, you would use those types of antibiotics that work on C. diff. So for a while, things were great because people would get C. diff, they would come to the hospital, they would get treated, and they'd be fine. But now we have resistant cases. So there is now something called recurrent C. diff infection, meaning people keep getting it over and over and over again. And there is now, there are people now who are not responding to the treatment where they just basically um, going on and on for months and months and months where we can't kill off the bacteria despite prolonged use of antibiotics over three months, for example. So basically, then people got together and thought, well, how can we control this infection, C. diff, if the gut microbiome is supposed to fight it off when the, when the antibiotics are not working anyway? Why don't we use healthy gut microbiome to re-inoculate that person's gut to fight the infection? And lo and behold, it worked. So they would take a donor who is healthy, preferably plant-based, that's the, that's, that's a company and open biome. That's what they did in Boston. They took healthy people who don't drink, who don't smoke, who eat a whole food plant-based diet. And they basically asked them to submit stool samples. They test these people for hepatitis, HIV, syphilis, and they take their stool and they re-inoculate the gut of somebody with C. diff. And lo and behold, it works beautifully. I mean, I have seen people come in in septic shock with this infection where they're on the verge of death on multiple medicines to keep their heart going. They're on the ventilator and we would give them this, this, this stool transplant. How does the stool transplant work? Is it a pill? Is it what Different is Different ways. Yeah. Okay. So you could basically um, take the stool and put it in capsules people swallow, or you could spray it into the colon with while doing a colonoscopy, or you could put a tube down someone's nose and put it through the tube. Okay. And that bacteria ends up, those good bacteria end up re-inoculating the gut of the person who's missing those types of healthy gut microbiome and fight the infection. And literally, it's the most effective way we have at this point, way more effective than antibiotics. It, it, it's crazy to think about how long does it take or how long can it take uh, for someone to recover after one of those transplants? Recover from the infection? Exactly. Oh, it's, it, in my experience, it's all... It's, it's almost immediate within a day within hours two days it's it's to a point where i'm thinking now why even use antibiotics to treat i think everyone should get a stool transplant that's how effective it is do they struggle with um how many donors they're getting is is no. there enough donors out there to to provide these people with transplants oh there's tons of supply i mean mm -hmm. <laughs> They can basically, how much did you get paid to donate your stool? I can't remember the exact like per stool amount. Um, but I mean, for something I did every morning Yeah. on my way to work. There you go. You're a vegan. You're like the perfect candidate. The, the, uh, who's, you're, you're healthy. Yep. You don't smoke, drink. You're fit. You can't, you can't, by the way, you can't be obese. You know, you can't have diabetes. They take fit people and yeah. who, are, who are healthy. So they pay people. And incentivize those types of donors who are really good donors. They test their microbiome and they encourage it. So there's a lot of supply. I mean, I know a lot of my friends who have donated their stool. Hmm. 
right? So there's so much. The problem is that the FDA is always lack, lacking, lacking behind. So it takes time for something to become mainstream. It takes time because people are always worried. What if this has risks? What are, what are the long-term risks? What are the benefits? You got to, you know, just like when a drug hits the market, you know, it has gone through rigorous, I don't know, testing. And even when it comes to the market, I never jump on the bandwagon right away and prescribe it. I wait till, you know, it stays on the market for a couple of years unless I have no other option, right? So same thing with stool transplantation. I think it's it's the way to treat C. diff, but again, it has to be there long enough to pass the test of time. I just don't see how transplanting somebody, somebody's stool could be harmful. You know, you are increasing the diversity of the gut microbiome. It's not like you're putting chemicals in somebody's body. But I mean, there's still, it's just, it's a new thing. And, you know, it's becoming more and more mainstream. But now, I mean, the recommendations from the FDA is that it, 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 it's, it has to be somebody with C. diff that you treat, not just some random person who wants to get a transplant. And they have to have failed medical therapy as far as antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And then they're a good candidate. That may change. That may be, maybe it'll be, uh, the pyramid will get be upside down. And instead of trying the antibiotics first, maybe people would jump into top-down therapy where they go, let's go ahead and hit them with the stool transplant right off the bat. I mean, if it's that effective, right? it, it makes a ton of sense. And it's, it's quick. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. Um, something that I've been involved with uh, for anyone. I, d- I don't know how many places across the country do it, but for anyone, I want to let you know that you don't have to be like a whole pl- f- whole food plant-based eater. They do take um, people that are not vegan as well. It's just, it really gets back to how much fiber you're getting in your diet mm-hmm. uh, from what I understand. So um, yeah, really cool to learn about that. Thanks, thanks for for going into depth. I know you're working a lot on uh, SIBO at the moment. I came into the to mm-hmm. the kitchen last night at about 10 p.m. and <laughs> you had a couple of friends around and you were, um, yeah, basically having uh, a meeting on on SIBO, getting ready for uh, what you've what you've all been working on. What is it? How does it differ to C. diff? Is it completely different? Um, and yeah, is it is it becoming more prevalent, much the same as, as some of this other stuff we've talked about? So, um, so SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And basically there's an overgrowth of colonic type bacteria in the small bowel. And so there's an overgrowth of this bacteria. And what it does is it causes a lot of gas and bloating. So people say, for example, they wake up in the morning and they're fine with a flat stomach. And as soon as they eat something or drink something, their abdomen gets distended, full of gas. And they get relief by burping or passing gas by flatulence. When it's excessive, then it's not normal, obviously. SIBO is... A problem also in patients with irritable bowel syndrome, whereas we used to look at them as completely different entities, we now know that what you can have is irritable bowel syndrome and overgrowth of bacteria in your gut, which can basically 
cause the symptoms of IBS. So perhaps their SIBO and IBS are along the same type of disease and it's just different spectrum of it or, or something. But pretty much um, SIBO can lead to vitamin deficiencies like vitamin B12 and folate deficiency. It can um, result in diarrhea and bloating and gas, very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable disease. And um, so people come in to see me often with that common, very common complaint of bloating. And so whereas in the past, our only option was the FODMAP diet, which in my opinion is actually not a healthy diet, we are now finding ways to treat it um, with not with drugs or anything, but with basically food. And so my dietitians and I, we got together and we decided to put our heads together and create a protocol which encompasses food as medicine. And we basically literally start transitioning people to a fiber-rich diet very slowly and eliminate not the FODMAPs, not all FODMAPs, but the FODMAPs that are, that are deleterious for GI health and keep the FODMAPs that are healthy for gut. So, for example, we eliminate sugar, um, honey, uh, lactose, and other um, uh, like fake sugars out of the diet. And we encourage slowly increasing the fiber-rich foods and the probiotics, prebiotics, I'm sorry, into the, into the diet. And, and basically re-inoculate their gut and uh, promote health um, every day as they stay on that diet. So we have a we have a protocol coming out that we're we're gonna help people with, um, in, instead of having to do that FODMAP diet that is not sustainable and not healthy, uh, people will have options now. Perfect. I'm seeing some um, some consistencies with you know regardless of uh, what kind of problem we're treating, there's a lot of similarities with with nutrition and diet and what we can do. Uh, to either treat or prevent, um, you know, some we have to take a little bit more intervention, like a like a uh, a stool transplant. But um, I'm sure after a stool transplant, it would be highly recommended that they, uh, t- you know, prolong this yeah, with uh, mean, with a whole food plant based diet. If you take a hammer and break your arm, you know, you can go cast it and it'll get better. But if you take the hammer and hit your arm again, it's going to break again, you know? So doing a diet for short term is not the end all and be all. And doing a stool transplant is only helpful in the short term. It will, see if can come back, SIBO can come back. So for example, if you listen to everything I say and go through my six week protocol and you eliminate SIBO, but then you go back to eating the same way, food full of saturated fat and zero prebiotics, of course, you're going to end up in the same place. So, you know, there's no quick fix. And I know that people don't want to hear it. People want their quick fix, their magic pill. But, you know, I have no magic pill and I'm just being truthful. If you want a magic pill, go talk to Dr. Gundry (laughs) (laughs) or someone else who doesn't know what they're talking about. You know, Um, they're trying to sell you supplements. I'm not trying to sell a supplement. I'm trying to be truthful. I'm not trying to make a quick buck. I'm trying to be, um, it's coming from the heart and my conscience would never allow me to sell something that doesn't work and I wouldn't lie to people. So I am basically using food as medicine. 
that's where it should be use food as medicine as medicine beautiful yeah i'm yeah i'm so stoked that there's uh, there's people like you out there that are you know able to able to bring this to their patients and not only their patients this is something we haven't spoken about but social media is is becoming a really cool tool for doctors because they're you know often really low on time in their practice um you know there's a lot of a lot of patients coming through the doors with only so much time in the day yeah um social media is something that you know technically 24 7 outside of uh, work hours you're able to post um, during the day or you know outside of your work day uh, and provide really helpful information and there's yeah people like you michelle mcmacken um, mauricio gonzalez uh, garth davis you know the, the list is continuing to grow building really strong followings uh, which is i think a really strong indicator of what people are looking for they're looking to heal they're looking for health uh, and it's yeah, it's really awesome that um, we're able to to get resources like yourself quite easily now, um, which is which is really cool. There's some of my followers have uh, asked a couple of questions that I'm interested in in getting to. Uh, one is about fermented foods. Uh, so how often how often should we eat fermented foods? Are they beneficial to us? So things like I suppose kombucha is uh, a fermented tea drink uh things like I, I don't know what is this like sauerkraut yeah fermented cabbage um kimchi things like that it's a good question no one really knows how much you can eat without creating problems no one really knows that answer and are they healthy for you yes i mean they are healthy for you but you know so is water but if you over drink i can i i assume you could cause hyponatremia or drop your you know uh, blood sodium levels and not do very well so i think just because something's healthy doesn't mean we should overdo it so with fermented foods although they're good for you because they contain the pre uh, the probiotics that could re-inoculate the gut and um help in regards to gut health perhaps overdoing it may not be good. And no one really knows the answer of how much. You know, we, we do know they're healthy, but I guess don't overdo it because we don't know, <laughs> you know. It's like, I suppose, yeah, you're right. It's like anything. I suppose you want to have a, a diverse diet. Um, right. Not, you know, not pounding back, you know, a gallon of kombucha a day. It's probably, not, right. a gr- it's probably not a great That's idea. Right. yeah. Cool, good it's to know. It's the same with, probiotics i mean you know what would happen if someone normal keeps taking probiotics for no good reason there could be that could become a problem you know we don't that's not recommended per se so it's the same thing with um fermented foods they're good for you but i'm not sure that one should overdo it the funny thing is as well they've been around forever they've been around for a long time mm-hmm. um i believe kombucha is like an ancient mm-hmm. kind of drink um i know fermented uh, cabbage like kimchi and and sauerkraut um you know they've they've been around cultures for a, a very long time i think they're just getting to western culture now and that's why they're in the headlines yeah. so um yeah thanks for that one and then the last one was a from he was a, a friend back at home in australia he asked i i, I thought it was a, a really interesting question um basically 
if someone has, and I, you might have alluded to it before as well earlier in the podcast, but let's address it directly. Um, he asked, if someone is uh, suffering from very, very severe um, gut issues, should they eat meat and something like eggs for caloric you know, intake so that they're meeting uh, you know, their requirements for the day? Yes, so people who have eaten meat, dairy, and eggs for years and years, and they want to eat more plant-based, um, for various reasons, they cannot digest the food very well because the carbohydrates and the fiber-rich um, short-chain carbohydrates are digested by the gut microbiome. And same with a lot of the micronutrients. Everyone's focused on the macronutrients, but a lot of micronutrients, um, you know, oxalates, lectins, a lot of different molecules are pretty much processed by the gut microbiome. So if somebody doesn't have the machinery in their gut to break down these fiber-rich foods, they're going to have a lot of gas and bloating. So transitioning into a whole food plant-based diet is really key. I'm not condoning eating eggs and meat because that is in the long-term deleterious for the gut microbiome. However, if you've been eating those things and you want to transition into a plant-based diet to improve your gut health, do it slowly. So it doesn't mean that overnight you should like, you know, just eat a whole bunch of foods. The protocol my dietitians and I, um, James and Dahlia Marin and I have put together allows you to do that, allows you to stop eating meat, dairy, and eggs overnight. But we have really carefully uh, pretty much dialed this in where you can transition without getting a bunch of fiber on your first day and raw foods that are not digested easily. Uh, legumes that are not digested easily. So we've done it <clears throat> very systematically. And so you can go overnight, you can go plant-based and tolerate it well because it's, it's designed to have a certain amount of digestibility, a certain amount of volume, a certain amount of fiber. But for someone doing it on their own, I can't imagine how it would be. It's a little bit harder. So you know, soon I will have my protocol available. But if you're just doing it on your own and trying to experiment, I would say slowly um, avoid the meat, dairy. The, the dairy, go just cold turkey. Don't ever eat dairy again. I mean, none, zero zip, never, ever again, zilch, okay? Um, with the meat and dairy, slowly get it. So you need a, a certain amount eggs. of... Huh? Meat and eggs. Meat and eggs, Slowly, yeah. yep. Meat and eggs, slowly. So if you're eating, for example three pieces of chicken a day and five eggs today, like every day, and you're eating three pieces of cooked broccoli, <clears throat> eat three pieces of cooked broccoli and maybe two and a half pieces of chicken and three eggs instead of five. I mean, I don't know, slowly increase the vegetables to um, basically replace the calories that you're not consuming from animal products, if that makes any sense. And then there are, there are different types of fiber. I mean, you have to understand there are, there are types of vegetables that are much easily, much broken down and digested much easier than other types of vegetables. For example, root vegetables that are cooked are much more, like potatoes. 
are so much uh, more well tolerated. Excuse me. <laughs> All right. Uh, Bijan, can you open the door? Sorry. We've got guests. <laughs> can you open the door, please? I'm sorry. So those, those types of uh, foods are much more tolerated. Um, and so basically, it also, it's important what type of vegetables. Cool. I think that hits the nail on the head on that question. Sam, I hope you're happy with, with Angie's answer there. I thought it was very comprehensive. So I think um, it's probably a good time for us to, to wrap this up and, and round it out. That was an awesome conversation. I learned a lot myself just from talking to you today. Um, where can we find you? That's probably the most important thing. So I can be found on Instagram. Um, my IG handle is A-N-G-I-E dot S-A-D-E-G-H-I, Angie dot Sadegi. And my website is www.drangiehealth.com. So it's D-R-A-N-G-I-E-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. Beautiful. All right, Angie. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your hospitality. Thank you so much. Uh, look forward to, to catching up with you again in the future. And yeah, really looking forward to, to getting this one live. Thank it you. It was fun. Thank you so much. Cheers. Have a good one. Cheers. Hello again. What did you think? I definitely had my notes open when listening back to the show. Some amazing statistics and information about what goes on in our gut. The right food is so important and consistently over time we can build healthy guts that are powered to fight disease and not allow it to grow and spread. If you do have any questions from this week's episode, please reach me at VegTalk, that's V-E-D-G-E-T-A-L-K on Instagram and leave a comment or drop me a direct message. I'd love to hear from you all. You can find Angie on Instagram at Angie.Sadegi, that's S-A-D. E-G-H-I or head to her website at drangiehealth.com She's an amazing resource for science-backed information providing you with the knowledge you need to make the right decisions regarding health and nutrition. If you enjoyed this week's show it'd be very much appreciated if you can leave a rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and goes a long way in helping the show reach more people. It is up to us to speak for the up for the animals, environment, and our health. And episodes like this one are critical in helping those in need of quality, trustworthy information. Next week's show is another big one with Hannah Howlett from High Carb Hannah and her husband Derek, also known as Handyman. I look forward to catching up with you all then. Have a great week and keep on taking those steps to becoming plant strong.